Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And uh, I've got another great episode here that's going to come out, another great guest, a industry uh, legend and leader, Dale Peterson of Digital Bond, and most famous for the S4 events, which uh, are coming up in uh, coming up soon, uh, April. What's the, what's the first day of that, Dale? 19th through the 21st. 19th through 21st. I'm planning to be there Monday through Friday and take in a as much as I possibly can. I know a lot of us are excited after such a crazy couple of years and not being able to see colleagues and friends. And so I think a lot of us are converging on your uh, on your conference. But uh, Dale is is well known for the conference, but he's also an author. He's uh, formerly a cryptologist. He's a husband, father. He's a skier, hiker, outdoorsman. He's certainly a well-known speaker and he's a catalyst in the control system or ICS cybersecurity space. And uh, Dale, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. So, um, Dale, I sort of some of these questions, they just uh, are now, I guess, part of the routine. And I always uh, sort of make the, the joke that uh, that modern day superheroes uh, um, include must include cybersecurity people and all superheroes have a backstory. So let's start with yours. Where where does uh, where did Dale come from? Uh, Midwesterner. So first 10 years in the Minneapolis suburbs, second 10 years in the Chicago suburbs and pretty much just, you know, stuck around there for the first 20 years of my life. Well, then you and I could have bumped into each other because I'm from Indiana and uh, I spent, yeah, the first 19 years of my life there. So, yeah, I, uh, I know that part of the world uh, uh, quite well. I always am curious of what people do. You know, um, a lot of our listeners are uh, looking at sort of industry leaders and wondering how they ended up there or they're mid, mid-level. You know, we have people at all levels of our organization. We have people in reset. So I know that a lot of listeners uh, to our podcast series come from all different parts of their professional journey. And some are thinking to themselves, how do I get into this industry? Some are thinking, what moves do I make to potentially become a, a leader of some type? It can be different, technical or managerial. Uh, and they're looking at all of you and say, how did you end up there? And I like to go all the way back in your guys' sort of origin stories um, and just kind of when you started doing any kind of work, you know, what was that? Oh, probably like you as well. If you came from the Midwest, uh, early jobs were mowing lawns and shoveling snow. Uh, and that sort of thing. And then just a variety, you know, cleaning up tennis clubs. Uh, probably the f- most interesting and influential work that I did uh, on my career before, you know, my first real job was probably selling. I I actually sold Chicago News subscriptions door to door. They would send out uh, a week to someone for free and then send someone, you know, either late high school or college around and try to convince them that they should buy it. So I did that job. I actually sold that. And that was very easy because it was a high quality product and it was a really good deal, kind of like the deals you get now with the Wall Street Journal or something like that. I also did some selling of magazine subscriptions, which were a terrible, terrible deal. I mean, a complete ripoff. And it was just amazing how much easier it was to sell something that you liked and you believed in. So, you know, that that was very influential to me early on that I never wanted to be talking or even working in a company for something I didn't believe in. Oh, man, I get that. I, I've been uh, similar, started out selling different things, you know, very, very early. And then I've been an entrepreneur for 25 years. And I found my most troubling times is when I'm supposed to be pushing or promoting or selling something that I've lost heart in or worse, you know, think there's something bad about it. It just there's people clearly who can do that. But I also could not do that. So I yeah. I, I get that. But that that building block then comes full circle to where you are today, right? You 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 are you built one of the I think the preeminent events in our space, 
and it involves selling. It has to, you know, and uh, so you learn, you started in that, on that skill set uh, very, very early on. I think so. And I mean, there's obviously skills involved in that. Even if you believe in it, it's still a something that you can learn how to deal with objections, learn how to talk, yeah. you know, in the customer's language, learn the benefits and and all that. But it, it really becomes for someone who is not against some people just don't have the character to do that sort of thing or to take the rejection. But if, if you yeah. have that ability and you believe in your product and you believe in the deal that you're offering, it really is very easy to do because you actually think you're doing somebody a favor. And, and yeah. that's a big thing. And I, I always, whether it's, you know, you can go all the way from religion to products or something, when someone really believes they're helping you and trying to get you to do this, it, it makes the job of selling a lot easier. And, and I'm in a fortunate position, I have been for the last 20 years, where I just don't have to do anything I don't really believe in. Yeah, and that is that is the definition of, uh, of uh, a nice nice place to be for sure. Uh, a lot of people are not not satisfied with what they do. And uh, so mm-hmm. that's, that's cool. Let's talk about uh, any technology. I mean, I think it's interesting because I know what you studied in, in university and it wasn't technical. Any, any technology uh, interfacing with your life early on or does that just come later? Well, I'm going to show my age here a little bit, but I actually worked in junior high, which would have been 74 to 76. We had some computers in our junior high, but they didn't have monitors then. So you basically, you know, you would type if you're programming in basic, you know, 10 and then the command, you know, a for loop or whatever, and it would just remember it. And then you could print it out and you could see it on the, on the paper that rolled out. Um, and then you could hit run once the program was done. So that was some early stuff and, and Vic twenties, you know, a few years after that, the Commodore Vic 20, a little bit of that, but more for the gaming than the programming, Uh, you know, the programming was, could I do it? Yeah, it was okay. But I didn't, I probably wasn't as jazzed about programming as some of the other guests you've had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's been interesting. All of you have come from interesting, you know, different backgrounds and some people technology intersected later, some people security intersected very much later. Some were all OT engineering and not security all until later. Some have these themes going on amazingly early. It's just, it's, it's interesting where everybody starts. But I think that's one of the overall big takeaways is that now that we've had dozens of, of leaders like you on the show, you can come from different backgrounds. So there's people who might be listening who are like, well, I've spent all these years doing X or Y, I couldn't possibly end up doing Z. It's possible, start working and start moving in a direction and set the groundwork. Now you you go to school and you, you study finance, I think. Yeah, I started with engineering. I, I love the physics. I hated the electrical engineering courses. <laughs> so I jumped out of that. Actually, if computer engineering was a little more popular back then, maybe I would have moved into that, but I moved into finance, which I enjoyed and, and got my degree in that. And so logically, with a finance degree, you went to work for the NSA as a crypto analyst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you got to tell, tell how that how that happened. Well, and it's it's kind of been the the what I've always done in my career is I've always just moved to things that I thought would be interesting. And I, I was graduating from college. Uh, the logical path for me with my computer and math skills was to be an actuary. And I actually had a got a job to be an actuary and work for one week as an actuary uh, while I was waiting for my clearances. But I wanted to, you know, I was just looking for something a little more interesting. I read this great article about a State Department test where you go through 
there's a written test and then an actual practical test to see if you could be a diplomat. And I said, oh, that sounds cool. So I was going to sign up for that and the placement office said, you're too late. The sign up ended then, but hey, here's this other government agency, the NSA, which nobody had heard about back then, uh, back in 1980. And they said, they're coming to do a test. I said, okay. And I just took that test and ended up scoring very highly on cryptanalysis, those types of skills, and just kind of stumbled into that area. I would say just one other thing that was a little bit funny was my dad, who was an accountant and, um, and a CFO you know, in the insurance industry, he told me it was absolutely crazy to take the job. He said, you know, it sounds fun. I'm sure it's really interesting and cool, but what are you going to do? There's not going to be any other jobs you can do. You're going to be stuck because there was no security jobs in the 80s. And right. again, it was just kind of dumb luck that I fell into an area that then became very popular in the 90s and since. Yeah, that's that's true. It's in hindsight, it, it looks very uh, prescient, right? I mean, it it, it began to grow. Um, I yeah, I was in the military, I guess, in the in 19 started in 1994. And that was my exposure to it. Um, so I like your background. Mine also was not I was not pursuing technology, but uh, but got exposed to it by necessity and by military work. And then then sure enough, it becomes quite the uh, quite the industry. I remember. Uh, well, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, but in the 90s, even there wasn't much, you know, it was uh-huh. it was probably finance. There was some of it in banking, banking some yes. of it in military equipment. Yep. you know, encryptors for U.S. military and other military. And that was pretty much it. You went on to work for a company that that's what you were selling, right? It was uh, encryption uh, gear, equipment? Yep, for military radios, military microwave, that sort yep. of thing. That's kind of a nasty business. Uh, <laughs> I was glad not to only do that for a little while. Um, but then I think what we saw, it was funny. I went to the early RSAs and then there were, you know, a couple hundred people in the room and you could see Ron Rivest and you could see uh, Bruce Schneier selling his copy of applied cryptography out of boxes in the back of the room, you know, before he was Bruce Schneier and all that. But then I can't remember what year it was. It was like 97. No, it was earlier than that. It must've been like 95 or something. They moved RSA to a big place in San Francisco and IBM sponsored it and there were three bands and ice sculptures and and wow. that just showed me that you know the industry is is actually happening if someone was going to actually spend money on on crypto people or security people yeah so that we'll, we'll, you'll have to dub that what is that it's the band ice sculpture uh, you know canary in the coal mine when you see that you know the industry is uh, about to about to really grow yep yeah, I remember. I mean, uh, 1997 was the first time they crossed a billion dollars in total spend, you know, for for information security. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, from 97 till now, I mean, wow, what is it? A quarter, uh, 250 billion or 150 to 250 billion, depending on who, whose report we read right now. So amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is from service to forming your own company. That's about an eight-year gap, and then your journey after that has been digital bond and. S4, and we'll talk about sort of the, you know, that comes into being. So you get some experience working at two different companies, and then you decide to start, you know, something on your own. What what led to that? Because I think that's a, this is an important share because there's a lot of people wondering. I, I get this question, like, I've got an idea. I'd like to leave where I'm at and start this. And, you know, I know the industry. I'm a cybersecurity person. But they're, you know, they're fearful about taking that first step and starting a company. What led to you doing it? And how were those first years? 
Well, and I, you know, it's funny. I'm not sure most people should start a company. If, if you've done it, as Probably I know you right. have, it's, you know, it's higher highs and lower lows. And it's something, I apologize for the noise here. We've got some construction going on in the house. But in 1998 was, you know, right in the dot-com boom. So almost everyone was starting a company. It was, uh, you were seeing these magazines come out just about entrepreneurs and all that. And, and I had an idea to secure uh, what was just starting that internet brokerages. So when you would buy something to prevent someone from spoofing it, kind of phishing protection before the, you know, before it was called phishing. So it was yeah. a smart card based system that we are trying to hawk to internet brokerages. So we started out as a product company and the company's probably shifted five, at least five times since then. Um, but it was just something I wanted to try. And uh, I, I thought it would be successful. We we really not never got past a successful beta. So then we started doing consulting to pay the bills like a lot of product companies do. Yeah, absolutely. That, that story path has been followed by many. And I've had some experiences on that same path. So that's interesting. I didn't know that it was a... It was a product uh, company at the very beginning. I, I knew some of the consulting and professional services things you've done and still do. I mean, that that's still part of your life. It's not maybe your main focus, but there's still some professional services part of what you do today. And that's where the name Digital Bond came from, because this was going to be your digital bond, that this was actually you performing this trade and, and preventing non-repudiation and such. Yeah. But yeah, the, the consulting was a bit of, of a surprise for me because I'd never done it before and we needed some money to you know, while we were still doing the project, uh, just to keep funding it, we raised a little bit, but we didn't want to raise more at that point from friends and family. So we just started doing this. And I found I really enjoyed the consulting, which was a bit of a surprise. I mean, and we did all sorts of things early on. We were doing firewall installs and other things, which really weren't much fun. But once we started to get into the assessment, the architecture type work, I, I found that I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, a lot of things come to mind that I want to ask you about. I mean, one, I, you sort of mentioned, you didn't use the word, but you described, you know, it's now the popular word pivot, but you you made you made adjustments to, you said at least five times to sort of the plan. So back to some of our listeners who might be contemplating building something. I agree with you. It's, it's not for everyone. It's typically not easy. Those are the newspaper articles. Like I started an idea in my basement and it was a huge success a year later. That's not most of the journeys and most of the paths. Any, any words of wisdom that you'd pass on to someone who's contemplating, you know, they've got a kernel of an idea or an idea and they're, they're going to maybe leave safety and security as it might be perceived of, you know, where they currently are occupied or work to do their own thing. Anything you'd pass on to them? There's so many things, but they, yeah. you know, it's it's a very different world too, because now as you've seen most of our, our peers in the industry, if you start a company, you raise some serious money. You know, that's how you do it as opposed to self-funding and bootstrapping. There's very yeah. little that goes on. So it's it's very different. I, I would say my biggest failure, which people can learn from, is you really have to be very self-aware of what your skills are and then augment them with the team um, if you're going to be more than a freelancer. You know, a freelancer, which is probably more accurate of what I've what I've done over the last 10 or 15 years, can be fairly independent. but if you are going to start a company, if you can't get that right team with the right skill sets together, and it just doesn't mean a bunch of smart people, it's really complementary skill sets, then you're probably not going to get anywhere. So that's that's where I would actually tell people to start is, can I confidently build the team I'm going to need at least for the first you know two phases of the company? 
Yeah, does that stay the same team and the same the same people in the same seats on the bus over time? No, it's going to change. You're going to need different things. Um, and and it's fun to watch some of these companies now as you see some of them as they get to these next levels, they actually have to start saying, oh, well, this person was perfect for this role. But now instead of being a 50 person company, we're a 300 person company. And there there tends to be, you know, there's that range up to 10 or 20 that you can do. And then it kind of shifts until you get to about 70 and then about 300. There's almost these step functions where you need more infrastructure and such. But it it really is an interesting thing. And I, I think the ones that are successful might be better to give some advice on this. I never grew the company beyond about 15 people. I think that was the largest we ever were. Yeah. Now, some of your alumni, you, you sort of launched, you know, I don't know if that was their first thing, but they went on to do other things from from having started with you. Oh, yeah. I've had, I probably have had 60 or more people run through the company, probably yeah. actually more than that. And I've even kicked some of them out. <laughs> you can, if you ever talk to them, they they were very mad at me for a while, but like after two or three years, you know, they had kind of maxed out at what they could do at Digital Bond. Yeah. You know, in ter- especially I think it was more the technical people who were really good at technical things. And it's like, well, you know, you can stay here, you're doing good work, but you really should leave and go somewhere else. And then usually a year or two after they understand it. <laughs> Sometimes they're a little bitter at, you know, when they got kicked out. But fortunately, I've I would say I've never had to fire anyone. I've told some people they should look for something else, but I've I've never had to fire one. But I'm really proud of the alumni. I mean, there's they're spread out all over and, and they're doing great work and they've advanced far past where they were with me. That's awesome. And that is a, a nice legacy to be able to 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 look at and to contemplate and remember. Well, let's talk a little bit about sort of I think digital bond, you're operating, you're you know, going through those those uh, phases of of, uh, of what it did and how it went, went to market, sort of products and services and things. And then S4, I mean, is it about 10 years of digital bond before S4 happens? I mean, I'm re- I think a lot of our listeners, and I'm curious, sort of the kernel of where S4 comes from. I mean, here we're getting ready to do S, you're getting ready to do um, 22, the 22nd edition of this conference. And people could look at it and say, you know, they can see how big it is now and all the different parts and pieces of it, it's an operation, but it didn't start there. And, you know, so if we go back, we wind all the way back to what was the catalyst for the first one and what was that first one like? I, I was not around. I was not part of part of this part of part of this part of the industry. I certainly wasn't in the control systems mm-hmm. part at all. Um, and so I wasn't at those early ones. Well, it was it was funny because, you know, so we did the product that didn't work. We did consulting, tried a little bit to be like a Florida, the dominant Florida player for as a reseller and service provider, that didn't work. We started doing more things in the US and even globally, we did some projects in Saudi. And then in 2000, actually stumbled across ICS. We got some call out of the blue and I'll never know why it was, it was us and IBM that were competing for this job in Arizona, this water utility in Arizona, who for some reason was worried about ICS security in 2000. And and so we stumbled into that area and it was just fascinating. I mean, you've been out there anytime you can see anything in the field, it's it's almost always worth doing it, whether it be, a, you know, a canal, a dam, a water treatment thing, a chocolate factory. I mean, all this stuff is really cool. And we fell in love with it. So from about 2000 to 2003, we phased into only doing ICS. So about 2003, we started only doing ICS. 
And I started Paul to get some good all professional services. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We, we stopped reselling product. I hated that in, in 2001. <laughs> you know, resellers, that's a tough business. I take my hat off for those of you that do that well. I mean, I know With people that, that have made ever declining margins that yeah. I, I've never been in that business either, but know people that are. I'm like, man, you're, you can build up a business that, that is always constantly shrinking, and at least in what the original deals were on products. And you better be innovative and get volume. Yeah. Unless you get early on, you know, some of those early on checkpoint people like the guy on Shark Tank uh, really did well. Yeah, you know, reselling, early. reselling yeah. them when the but the margins do shrink and shrink. Yeah. So we we did that and it was a lot of fun. And then in 2007, or actually it was probably six, I had Matt Franz, uh, who still kind of kicks around the industry now and then, but he he does a lot of things. He found a vulnerability in the ICCP stack, in Cisco's ICCP stack. Cisco with an S, the one that's the one that's primarily used in probably 70 or more percent of all ICCP products. And we looked at it and we said, you know, Matt, you should present this somewhere. And he said, there's nowhere I can present it. There's nowhere where there's an audience that understands security and understands ICS that would get it. So we said, well, let's solve that. And that's why we created the first S4 in 2007, which had ended up having about 40 people and was actually simulcast. It was a hybrid event back in 2007. We did a virtual version and a live version of it. Wow. Yeah. And who, who knew years later how important that, that, you know, that concept would be? You were very early pre preparing for world pandemics, apparently. Well, we stopped doing it. We didn't like it. I think we did it for two or three years and we, we stopped doing it. Yeah. Uh, but, but we have some pictures of those people in the room, those 40 people. It was like a case study room, almost like a theater in the round with sloped seats and everyone. So everyone could see everyone. And there were a lot of great conversations. And most of the big names that, you know, have been in the industry for 20 or so years were there just because they were excited to have a place where they could go and talk at, at an advanced level. Yeah. Do you recall uh, any of the folks that were there that are still, you know, that are still doing well, Zach Tudor was there. Ralph Langer was there. Eric Byers was there. Yeah, I think Mark. I think Mark Fabro was there. Um, yeah, I mean, I look at the pictures. It, it's kind of funny to see all the all the faces. And and there's amazingly a lot of them in there. We have lost a, a few of them. Yeah, have, have died. But uh, it was an impressive group of people then, and and still is today. Yeah, and that's that's pioneering time frame. I I didn't uh, leave sort of traditional cybersecurity uh, realm. To control systems to 2012 and all those names plus more were 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 the, were the you know cl clearly you could instantly see the leadership of you know ideas and thought leadership and all that in 2007 so that's even you know e even even earlier and uh yeah back then the market's not not red hot so for this stuff but you guys uh, obviously saw the need which was very real it's becoming more apparent to more people every day now but back then that was uh that was more unique what was your thought like oh let's do this every year this would be a thing or was it just you formed that first one let's get together and it was only as a result of how that worked you know what led to you know when was it sort of like oh there's something i'm going to do here or was it just organic for a while no it was i think when we did the first one we thought we would do it again we would thought we would do it every year uh, but it was much more of i would say almost like a hobby it was you know the extra 10% work that you do it w wasn't that difficult we did film it so we did, you know, get the videos and that, but it's not that much work to put together. Uh, it was a two-day 
event in one place. You know, the party was at one place. It was it was pretty easy, so we could do it just kind of in our spare times. And you know, 2008, 2009, we had a pretty big crew. Then that's when we were like 10, 15 people. So it was it was very simple for us, and it was just a little adjunct that we did. So was that just the, everybody working on the 90% digital bond professional services? You just, you all did this too? Well, we all did this too. I mean, the the thing that, you know, probably the, the biggest hit we took was, was back there in 2008, you know, the, the financial crisis happened. We had really good contracts. We had big research contracts for us, you know, multi-million dollar research contracts from DHS and DOE. So we were doing things like uh, bandolier projects where we were finding the best way to configure, kind of the gold standard configuration for the systems used in oil and gas. And then we were putting out templates that you could run tenable to check them. And we had it for all the big ones. And we were doing another contract had IDS signatures that, that we were doing. Another one even had correlation between uh, data in OSI soft historians and security events. So we had we had a team of about 12 people doing all sorts of research, putting it out all open source. It was, you know, a really, I, I mean, that was, I was really fortunate to work with that team. It was a group of amazing people doing that work. And then the funny thing was this, this crisis happened. And were you in the industry then when they were buying all these smart meters with the recovery funds? No, I Mike Asante didn't didn't pull me uh, over into control systems till you know I think we were skiing in 2011, and he was like, "This is what you know." He, I was sort of the entrepreneur of our duo. He's like, "This is where you should be focused, and we oh, should do okay. something." And so that's that's when I started going control systems, industrial control systems. All right, well, what's going on over here? Well, if anyone in the electric industry probably remembers that there was all this money. So there was the financial crisis, the recession. They said, we need to pump a bunch of money in it. And one of the things they did was they said, we got to give all this money to the electric sector. And the electric sector mostly chose to spend it on smart grid projects, a lot of putting in smart meters. The, I say funny now, but it was painful at the time thing was because our contract was only a million or so dollars, all the funding was set. It was ready to be approved but we couldn't get the paperwork done because they said we need to work on these hundred million dollar or larger projects we can't work on yours so we had like an 18 month funding gap in our project that just kind of destroyed it and you know things yeah. like that things like omicron you know they're, they're things that you just don't expect in a business you know they're they're completely beyond your control and you just have to you know find a way to deal with them or find a way to get a new job yeah so if we look at the first S4 in when forming it, it was the only impetus like, hey, there's no venue for us to get together to talk. Was was at least forming it? Was there a vision of a long-term thing? Or did you right away say we should form a thing? I'm just curious always about vision and when it clicks into place, like we're we're gonna make this into something. I mean, when 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 that first impetus, the gentleman you mentioned that you know had something to present, uh, a discovery and no real venue or stage to do that on with the right qualified audience. Was that the light bulb? And you said, I should I should collect qualified audience every year, or did that come later? That's a tough one. I, you know, we always knew that we were gonna, from the start, we thought we would do it every year. We thought that it was needed for community building. And we did, we, we took uh, 2011 off and 2021 because of Omicron, but we always planned on doing it every year. I guess what kind of shifted was 
at some point it got big enough where it, it just couldn't be a hobby. You know, it, it was just yeah. taking up so much time and it was a, a question, do we do we take it seriously and actually treat it like an event that that we're going to work on and, and do or do we keep it small? Although I'm not sure that would have worked. I guess it probably could have. We could have kept it at like a 300 person event, but that was really the, the decision point. Up until then, it was just something that was pretty easy to do just in our spare time. So what's a, I'm always curious, um, it would do sort of a yin and yang. What's a, a most positive moment you remember something or, or just enjoyable moment from the S4 you know, years at a conference and, and maybe worst moment? Well, I, I think probably the most positive moment was um, 2012, because again, we took 2011 off and 2012 was just amazing. We had Ralph Langner give his Stuxnet deep dive and 60 Minutes came down to film it which was very cool. We had Washington Post, so we had a lot of a lot of people down there. And and there were just a lot of great presentations there. There was kind of the first, like, it was pre-Shodan, but what's on the internet, uh, we had the engineer. We had we probably had, I think we did Project Basecamp that year, the PLC testing. So that one was just an amazing quality content. And it was still small. We were still at just 80 people. So it was an amazing group in, in an area. That was definitely a highlight. I, I think one other highlight was a few years back, and I, I probably should have remembered exactly what year, but it was probably like 2018, just at the welcome party and just seeing all these people spread around the botanical gardens and seeing how it grew. And just, it was, it was actually a little bit disappointing because at that point I realized the event was more about that, about everyone talking to each other than any programmer nice staging I put on or anything else. I mean, we still work our butts off to to do a great job on that, but it was very clear that just this ability of everyone to get together in a creative space was really the key. Yeah, there's the conference and then there's the conference around the conference, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know as, as a participant in, in both both levels, yeah, there, there's a lot of importance to that second one around it. Uh, there's no, no question that's a a nice thing I'm looking forward to two weeks uh, from now for being down there for sure. Well, you know, um, it's it's funny though. We we actually took it to the next level and we created the cabana sessions. We hold things in theaters, not um, not hotels. We have, you know, we don't have exhibit floors. We have people in cabanas around the pool and such. And the idea of taking the whole afternoon off on the second day was really, people reacted very negatively to the idea of it. Everyone thought, oh, this is, you know, we didn't come here just to sit around. We came here to sit yeah. and watch these presentations. What are you doing? And after the first year, everyone loved it. And when it was just clear. I think that was 2017 we did okay. that. You know, and we just said Wednesday afternoon, the second afternoon, you know, one to five, we just shut down and everyone just come here. And the, just something about being in the sunshine and hanging out with each other. And I think during during the day was actually different than a nighttime party. It, it was something, but that's where you see this idea of, yes, the sessions are great. We throw a lot of great ideas at it, but just providing these environments where these connections and, and relationships can be built is is just so important. Well, in the small world that it is, in a meeting just hours ago with one of our brand new uh, sponsors, what did he say? He said, are you going? We've got a cabana. You got to stop by. It'll be the first time we've ever met face to face after all these virtual phone calls the last couple of years. So anyway, that just that's that was today, two hours, three hours ago. 
So I look forward to, uh, to to being in that what you've set up there. And I think it, a lot of people talk about that as a powerful thing. It's interesting that you shared that it was not necessarily perceived positively at first. It was a different thing. You took a different approach. I love that. I, I think that's a, you know, I'm always looking for sort of some of the, what are the golden nugget takeaways from these these interviews. But that's one there, which is don't be afraid to try something new in your career or your business or whatever. And some of those turn out to be pure gold. Well, and I've, I'm sure you've seen this in the industry now that you've been been with it for 10 plus years is just it's one of the problems we have. All industries have it, but you fall into this mindset and like this is the way we do it. This will work. This won't work. And we really try. I think we need to throw out a lot of new ideas and try to get people to think in new creative ways. And one of the ways you do that is you just you force them out of their usual patterns. And and that's one of the things that I think is real important. Yeah, yeah, that that's I think great advice. Um, any any scariest or worst moments or funniest moments that uh, that come to mind over these years? Well, I think we've you know certainly the scariest moment we've just been through. You know, when these as these events get large, you sign a lot of large contracts. Yeah, <laughs> and you start having to negotiate these force majeure clause. Is this a force majeure event? Is it not a force majeure event? Can right. we move the event? Can we not move the event? Because we we actually sign most of our contracts, you know, a year in advance. So this has been interesting. And luckily it's it's all worked out. Everything's gonna happen, but there were a lot of tense times. We've had just a, a lot of funny things. I think one of the funniest is now that the main stage is so big, I mean it's and it's in a theater, so you have these bright lights. And we have a lot of people that have given many technical presentations, but not usually on a big stage with all those lights where they can't see the audience. Yeah. You know, and we give them all a briefing before they walk out there. And so they should be ready, but still they walk out there. And there's a lot of days looks for the first 10 seconds. And I think even one of our one of the performers two years ago actually, you know, said, oh, and some profanities after it as he walked out there. <laughs> as like his his first thing. He's like, oh no. And then he kind of snapped into it and he gave a great session. But yeah. I think that's yeah. always funny to watch people deal with being in a real theater with a real stage. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is a it's a different, very different type of venue for sure. I remember the first time I walked out and was blinded, uh, you know, couldn't see anybody. And that's that's a weird disorienting place if you haven't done it before. I always ask this just because I'm sort of curious about all, all of these journeys. Uh, all your, your paths have been different, but I'm always looking for some things that are maybe always checked off. Has me- mentorship, giving or receiving, men, you know, mentee, mentor, has that played a part in your in your journey? Well, I think on the mentor side, I think I get more of my mentors from thought leaders than, you know, one-on-one deep relationships, which, you know, is probably to my loss, but just a, a fact of it. I mean, for example, I I really listen to Seth Godin. I mean, when I'm talking about marketing, I've, I've learned Purple so cow. much for him. Yeah. And early on, and this was something I actually, if you look at the mentor-mentee, when I started um, in 2000, Tom Peters had just introduced this brand new concept that you are your own personal brand. He was one of the first to actually kind of at least vocalize it and write it down. And he had a little book called Brand You 50 with, you know, 50 different things you could do. And one of the things I did with all of the consultants when they joined, I'd give them one of those books and we'd say, okay, what are you going to be best in world at? And 
okay, here's this book. What are the five things that you're going to do to be best in the world? Because it's amazing, especially in new sectors, and I would still call ours a new sector. You can very quickly become best in world at something if you if you narrow down and then make yourself known. And I, I think probably more than any technical skills that I've given to the people that have run through Digital Bond, it's this idea of help them create a really high impact, high visibility project, help them build their personal brands. So that that's probably on the mentee side where I've helped the most. I think that's another sort of nugget again to pull out of this session with you, Dale. It's uh, that's good advice for anybody, which is, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. The opposite of what you just described may not may not make you distinctive or give you, you know, open, interesting doors. Whereas if you say, you know, this is something I'm really good at or really passionate about, ideally maybe both, really good at and passionate. Hey, look out! And you focus on that and you hone that. It 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 just creates opportunities uh, for anyone, right? I mean, I think that's that's sort of this idea. You're, you know, that's that's why I took away from what you said. Yeah, and we've seen it. I mean, it worked for me back in in like 2005 when I was trying to say, okay, well, where am I going to make my mark in this industry? I started writing the first I, the first um, this is tough ICS IDS signatures, so intrusion detection signatures for ICS protocols. And nobody had done anything, so of course they were the best. <laughs> and and I got a lot of visibility on that. And we even see yeah. this today. For example, one of the things that came out of S420 was this idea that Jake Brodsky did of secure coding practices for PLCs. Yeah. And a couple of people jumped up, Vivek, Sarah, jumped up and said, hey, we're going to lead this effort and actually made it happen. And that's an amazing branding exercise. Now, they didn't do it strictly for the branding. They're providing a useful service to the community, you know, on their own time. But it wasn't that difficult for them to get very high visibility because they stepped up and found this little thing that could make an impact. A good segue, something I like to ask uh, guests as well, is sort of a little bit of future gazing. You're, you you consume a lot of information. You write a lot of information, which I want to get back to sort of your publishing and the things you write as well. But you may see some things down the road. As we talk about someone becoming, you know, honing their skills in the area and, and, and really being able to maybe create a, an interesting career path around it. Um, we get this question sometimes, you know, I could go into so many different, you know, facets of cybersecurity. What would be the one that five years from now you know, would be like, oh, that was no brainer to go in that direction. And people say, is that machine learning, artificial intelligence, blockchain? You know, it, are, it, there's something I can add to whatever I'm doing now. And if I became a master of this, it would make me super valuable in the future. I'd be on the cutting edge of something. You know, in your if you put your future glasses on and you look ahead, what, what are you excited about and, and that people might start learning and being on the cutting edge of today? Well, I, I spend a lot of time looking at this, and this is, you know, when I'm when I'm actually looking for the program, that's a lot of what I'm saying is what's yeah. who's doing what, who's doing really cool work. You know, I think if you're just talking about your own career, though, I think there's so many choices. Now, if you say I want to start a business, then you have to say, okay, I need I need this big market. But if you're just saying I want to look at this area or I want to be the the best in this, there's almost unlimited possibilities of that. So if it's a career decision, I, th I think it's very easy. I would just try to pick something where you can find some new ground. I, I think that's more important than actually picking who's the winner. Like if we're saying what's going to be the next market winner, well, I'd say 
you know, and you want to latch on to a company, then I'd say this uh, this SBOM stuff, SBOM and VEX stuff, and basically analyzing software and firmware for their components and vulnerabilities and such. That's we've, we're kind of past the initial phases of the d- detection visibility side. You know, that's grown big now. But if you say, I want to get in the ground floor and try to be part of one of these companies, that's that's probably where I'd go there. But if you're talking about career, I mean, there's so much. For me, I'm most I'm fascinated by what's going to happen at level one, PLCs, RTUs, and such. I I think we're starting to finally get secure protocols in those. We're starting to get secure boot. We actually are now seeing some endpoint protection research into those. So the equivalent of application whitelisting or antivirus for those sorts of things. Uh, we should be seeing those move to virtual platforms. To me, I mean, that's, it is not where the market is. So if you if you want to start a company, I'd say it's probably too early, but that's technically what I'm actually most interested in. I think you just, both of those examples are, are, are man, they'll resonate with me. And it's the Wayne Gretzky quote kind of comes to mind, that last thing you're mentioning, like, don't ski where the puck is, but where you think it's going to be. And uh, and you're right, this this whole area of, of software bill of materials, hardware bill of, bill of materials, and how we're going to manage the, the supply chain risks. I think there's a number of bytes of the Apple there that people could look at that are uh, that are early. Um, we, we just... Uh, had a big discussion with Eric Byers and Alan Friedman about that. And I felt what you just described listening to them. I'm like, man, the entrepreneur me thinks there's a lot of opportunity here, but there's career opportunity there too. And and your the layer one stuff you're talking about, I I I think that sounds also very promising for someone to to gain, you know, if nothing else now, like you said, launching a business is one thing. You need to be looking at what your market's gonna be in the next X years. But for someone who says, I want to start reading and researching and augmenting my my professional knowledge. Those are areas dive in right now, right? Yeah, I, th- I think they are. Um, and probably the other big one would be process variable anomaly detection, which kind of hits your machine learning AI, where you start to say this process. And we, we've seen uh, GE did something with this with Digital Ghost, where they had a digital twin. And yeah. then they started to say, hey, from a physics or you know, a scientific basis. This just can't, it can't be what the thing is telling me. There's something wrong here. And and they would actually calculate what the value should be and send it back. But you could also use that for detection. And that's something that uh, as digital twins get more deployed is going to be, you know, another use of them. That makes sense. I guess, you know, we're nearing the end of our time together. And I always ask if, you know, sort of a, a couple similar things and just what are you most excited about? I mean, maybe it's some of the stuff you've already mentioned, but just if you looked ahead, what what excites you the most? Maybe it's about S425. You know, um, you have some some you know new things in the planning. Maybe you can't share those, but you know what's what's ahead for you? Well, I'm, I'm you know I can't can't think so much about that future with the event coming up in two weeks after we we're recording this. I, my mind's got a million things going on now, and I'm really excited about it. But I just I guess I'm most excited about where the community is going. I, I'm seeing a lot of new blood come in. We we still have a, you know a lot of a lot of uh, curmudgeons <laughs> who say you know things can't change, things have to stay the same. And and actually those people have their place too. You know you need to hear all sides of it. But we're starting to loosen up a little bit. We're starting to realize that the world is changing and that new technologies are coming and they have benefits and they have risks. So I'm I'm just most excited about the way the community's grown. 
and how a lot of fresh talent is coming in and how it seems to be an area that more and more people want to get involved. Yep. Uh, I totally couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, I see that and it's exciting. And um, Well, you must see that in your own organization, right? I mean, you're, yeah. You're, you're, yeah I mean, you've got a lot of people joining in and, and probably seeing them come from places that maybe you didn't even expect. That's absolutely true, uh, Dale. I mean, I think that actually is why we exist. It wasn't by grand design or a business plan or any of the premeditated stuff I did in the past that we planned everything out. And of course, never went according to plan exactly like you wrote down. This one was organic, and it was because there are so many people at so at so many different stages of knowledge and needing support and wanting insights and wanting to share, you know, and connect with other people and all these sorts of things. And the workforce, you know, the workforce has there's a lot of challenges with the workforce. And so, yeah, I, I think we are seeing people coming from lots of places and um, I'm asking myself a lot, you know, how can we support people coming into this workforce? You know, anything we can do to, you know, support more people joining it. And uh, there's a lot of vacancies, obviously. We see and my synop- summary or my uh, belief around uh, the, the job vacancies is that when they finally get them full- filled, for the most part, historically, they're stealing it from someone else and creating another vacancy. You know, and they're open, you know, this more senior sort of positions are open a long time. I'm also thinking that the the people have, you know, not to take away from anybody, you know, because I, this is just the way it's happened. I think they've been technical and they've been promoted into roles that require many other skills. And um, so we have sort of work to be done in yeah. that area, too. It's like, OK, now how do you report to the CIO or CISO or or the board or, you know, these things like, oh, boy, that's a whole new new area. So I think that's something that we're looking at. Because there is so much good technical knowledge being conveyed, certainly your uh, your events and all the writing you do, which I want to I want to get back to that for a sec before we close out. People are getting more and more ability to augment their technical knowledge and share with each other, and that, that's what we're sort of looking at is like, yeah, well, maybe there's some other skills that we can help people develop and then augment what's what's already in the marketplace in that way. So, yeah, I, and it's funny you you must live this as I do when you when you create an event or an organization that's let's say designed to, I guess not like a product or consulting organization, but more like your organization or a conference or something like that. I think it's really important to understand what your mission is. You know, so for example, S4, we, we say right out there, we don't do 101, we don't do 201 level stuff. We, we don't yeah. say you can't come, everyone's welcome to come, but we, we build it for the advanced ICS professional and we have we yeah. build it for people that want new ideas and try to figure out what's coming three to five years from now. Yeah. Now, so it's not the best place if I'm trying to, for, for example, and people who submit talks get very frustrated, they'll say, they'll submit a talk, you know, lessons learned from, you know, and then they'll say lessons learned from securing remote access. And that is needed by many, many more people than need to come to S4. You know, yeah. you've got this we, this basic educational thing, but I think it's really important for any organization or conference to say, what are we trying to do? Again, not not saying anyone can't come, but who are we trying to build this for? And I, I'm really hoping, for example, like ICSJWG, I think could be a tremendous introductory organization. Um, you know, your organization has has its mission as well, but I think that's, as it gets bigger, and we have more players in this industry, I think it's going to be really important to say, this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is who we're doing it for. Yeah. 
Well, I, it's funny you should say that. I, I told, I've told a couple of people, my analogy is I said, look, you can get a pretty good undergraduate degree with us, you know, entry level stuff. And if you want to go get a master's degree, one place to go do that is S4. Um, and so that's sort of how I've, how I've, I've, uh, paraphrased it. And, uh, because people are asking, you know, where do I go for, for more knowledge? And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to start to be better at saying, go here and go here and go here. And, um, mm -hmm. your, your conference is the preeminent, uh, you know, conference for this topical matter. It's certainly at the level, as you describe it, it is, yeah. I think it's the place, place to go. But it, it would be a place that you'd hate. Like <laughs> there's some people who say, you know, the people who say it'll never work in OT or it'll never work in ICS. They get very, you know, they, they can still come, but they get very frustrated because they hear idea after idea where their response is it'll never work here. So yeah. again, there's the places for that. And, and then there's, I think though, when you're talking about entry level, there's probably 50x times as many people that need entry level than need S4. It's a pyramid, you know, right? It, I mean, yeah, not a pyramid exactly. scheme, but a pyramid. Way more people at the base than at the top, yeah. yeah. So we need to find ways to, and and I like what you're doing in terms of the, the online programs and some of the things. We need ways to bring in masses of people for this sort of thing. Yeah. And, and we're even trying with uh, like the women in ICS program we have, uh, we're trying to find how do we bring more underrepresented groups into the community and women being probably Absolutely. the most underrepresented because you know they're yep. about 50 percent of the world and about 10 to 15 percent in our community so i think we all just need yeah. to find ways to find our yeah. niche and, and really push it couldn't agree with you more we we did we're just about to, to drop our annual report uh that we do with kpmg and uh of all the respondents last year and it's our biggest group uh, ever and international nine uh, well, I'm saying, I think the previous year were 9% women, and I think we got to like 12% women uh, in respondents. And so it reflects the number, the very number you're talking about. I think it, it, it statistically is probably right in there. Um, yeah. So we did see an increase between the two years we've done it, which is nice. Don't know really what to attribute that to, but uh, it did go up a little bit. Um, I think five percentage points um, between the two years. But all right, well, now we come to my favorite part of the show when I get to sort of tip my hat to a show that I've always enjoyed inside the actor's studio. Uh, it, it's run, I think it's still running, but the longtime host, James Lipton, most people think about this show as him interviewing some of the greatest actors and actresses on his on the stage of the- With um, the cards, right? Yeah, with the cards, exactly, yeah. exactly. And he always ended the show with the Pavot questionnaire, which was borrowed from a French show. And so as far as I know, he borrowed it word for word, and this is certainly the version that he used. And I, uh, if you're up for it, I'll give you the exact uh, same questions to, to end our show together. Okay, I wish I remembered it more, but let's go. All right, Dale. What is your favorite word? Catalyst. What is your least favorite word? I was going to say it won't work, but that's that's <laughs> that's not a word. It'll work. A phrase. Uh, what turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Mountains. What turns you off? Probably oceans. <laughs> What is your favorite curse? It's not word? good since I live in since I live in Maui. That's kind of not yeah, good. Yeah, I just think you live you live in a very ocean oriented sort of place. Way up what on is, the volcano, though. As far as away from the ocean as you could get. Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite curse word or abbreviation? I don't have one. I don't curse. What sound or noise do you love? Grinding coffee beans. What sound or noise do you hate? Alarms. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Acting. What profession would you not like to do? Accounting. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? All your friends are here. 
All right. Thank you, Dale Peterson, founder and CEO of Digital Bond and founder of S4, the uh, most well-known uh, industrial control system cybersecurity conference, I think, uh, in the world. And it's in, uh, in the spring every year in Miami, coming up here very, very soon. I uh, hope to see people there. I'll look forward to seeing you there, Dale. And take care in the meantime. I know you have a lot, lot of details to probably nail down between now and then. Thanks, Derek.